Hey everyone, it's Caleb, and I'm so grateful that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am honored to be joined by Suzanne Stabile, who is a returning guest on the Learner's Corner podcast. You know, whenever uh, my friend Todd and I, a few years ago, were doing um, the Learner's Corner podcast together, we were so excited whenever Suzanne uh, decided to come on uh, the show and talk about her book, The Path Between Us. And I was really excited whenever she, uh, whenever I, well, first of all, whenever I found out that she was coming out with a brand new book. And then uh, whenever we were able to uh, just get scheduled for her to come back on the show and um, just continue a great conversation about the Enneagram as well. And really, this is kind of the culmination of something that we've been doing all throughout uh, 2021 and looking at the different Enneagram types, you know, typically about uh, a different type of month or so in in uh, in coordination with a lot of the 40-day devotionals that had been coming out um, all throughout uh, 2021. And so if you happen to miss one of those, or if you're listening, you're like, oh, I didn't know that those happened, uh, you could just scroll through uh, the feed and you can, you know, look back on all of the different types that we've had, uh, as I said, all throughout 2021. And today, I'm honored to be joined by Suzanne, who is one of my favorite people to learn from as it concerns the Enneagram. And so super grateful for her to be on the show today. Now, if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, I do want to tell you about uh, really two core beliefs that drive what we do here on the Learner's Corner. The first one is this, that we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because uh, if you've grown up, um, you know, you've probably realized that uh, and not even just if, even if you've grown up, if you've if you've lived uh, throughout life, uh, there's a really high likelihood that you have probably um, encountered uh, certain topics that seem off limits to other people, and maybe you were just wondering, man, I'm wondering why this this topic is off limits. You know, I want to learn a little bit more, at least kind of see what it's all about. And um, you know, maybe you told someone like, hey, I'm learning from this person, or hey, I'm interested in learning about this subject. And there was just apprehension there. And, you know, maybe maybe some, uh, maybe a little bit what felt like an overreaction because you didn't see think it was that big of a deal. Um, and you were like, man, why is this person so upset about that? But anyway, all that to say is just knowing that I think we all intuitively know that you can't necessarily have uh, every single conversation or every type of conversation with certain people because you just know that it's not going to go very well. And, that, and what we want to do here is maybe if you feel like you don't have that person who is um maybe you don't maybe you feel like you don't have that person who you can talk with on a regular basis and i've and i've felt that way you know at different points of my life as well um what we want to do is maybe maybe pull back the curtain and let you know that you're not the only one that you're not the only one who thinks those things you're not the only one who wants to learn and grow and, and engage in difficult conversations. And, and what we want to do here is create a safe place to have those conversations. And that the goal isn't necessarily that we uh, agree at the end of it. And that kind of leads us to the second one is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree completely with them. And we can learn from anything, from any subject, from every subject as well. And we don't have to um, buy into it fully in order to learn from that person or learn about that subject as well. And so 
if this happens to be your first time listening, or hey, if you've been all the way with us uh, from episode one, I'm really glad that you've decided to listen today. Because as I mentioned today, I'm talking with Suzanne Stabile. And uh, we'll link to the previous episode that we did with her. Suzanne has written uh, three incredible books. But let me tell you a little bit about her, and then I'll tell you uh, about the, the books as well. Suzanne is a highly sought-after speaker, teacher, and internationally recognized Enneagram master teacher who has taught thousands of people over the last 30 years. She is the author of The Path Between Us and co-author with Ian Morgan Crone of The Road Back to You. She is also the creator and host of the Enneagram Journey podcast. All of those things have shaped me deeply whenever it comes to my understanding of the Enneagram. I think the... I don't think The Road Back to You was the first Enneagram book that I bought, but it was the first book, I think, that helped me best understand uh, the Enneagram because they they talked about it in such a simple way, in a very clear and understanding way. And uh, I've come back to it several times throughout the year, in the, or not throughout the year, throughout my life. And then The Path Between Us, which is really the journey to understanding how each different Enneagram type works within uh, each other, was so incredibly helpful as well. And even uh, not only, you know, dis- d- discovering my own uh, tendencies in relationships, but discovering the tendencies in the relationships who matter most to me as well and learning to um, and learning to love them better and learning out kind of what that journey is as well. And then I've listened to so many episodes of the Enneagram journey. It's always good and highly recommended. Suzanne herself is just somebody that if you're wanting to learn more about the Enneagram, she is one of the go-to people for it. And so we're not going to wait any further. Here's my conversation with Suzanne Stabile. Well, Suzanne, it's so great to have you back on the Learner's Corner podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, um, one of the questions that I usually love to start out with people is I love uh, hearing the story behind what led someone to create uh, the book of the work of art. And so with you releasing the journey toward wholeness, I would just love to hear um, kind of your story or some of the things that led you to go, hey, I, f- I feel like I need to, you know, expand on the Enneagram work and, you know, put this book out. Sure. Thanks. That's a great question and one that I love to talk about. I, uh, as you probably know, I'm not a fan of uh, Enneagram indicators or tests. So uh, having always said I would never write a book, I decided that co-authoring a book that was a primer would be a good thing for folks because then I would know that people have an opportunity to know their number for sure, should they want to. And um, as you probably know, it's done very well and it is a really good primer. And it's a, a way that I can say to people that I can't get to, to teach orally, read this, and then you'll know for sure. And then you're ready to move on to something else. So the path came after that and, you know, the general way of being in the world and and of doing Enneagram work is, okay, well, like I kind of get who I am, but who are these people I live with and work with and shop at the grocery store with and how can I um, be a better human being in relationship to them? 
And how can I get over the things about them that I don't like that cost me my peace or that cause me to think and behave in ways that I don't want to? So the path is all about relationships, but it's about relationships with other people. And it is put together in a way that if you want to be an effective communicator, you can do it by using the information that's laid out for you in bullet points in the path between us. And overarching all of my work, I'm trying to do my part for the world to be more compassionate. And I think the Enneagram is uh, uniquely suited to creating uh, an opportunity for people to be more compassionate with other folks. Then I was uh, thinking, am I going to write another book? Do I want to write another book now? And actually what got me interested in the third book was the question, I wonder how people respond to liminal space. So I uh, decided to write the book and IVP agreed to publish it before COVID. And I was just talking about the fact that um, people in my generation can't keep up with technology. We aren't keeping up with what would be required to take care of the climate, to take care of the earth for our children. We aren't doing very well in non-dualistic efforts. We're lining up on one side or the other of something. And I think that too is avoiding liminality. And I was perhaps equipped in a different way than other people to talk about liminal space because I found out actually during COVID that 22 years ago, is the first time that Richard Rohr talked to Joe and me about liminal space. So I've been thinking about it for a long, long time. It's like I was doing Enneagram work before it was trendy, and I was thinking about liminal space before that was a word that was common language for folks. And so I I thought, you know, how we behave in liminal space is important now, but it could be more important someday. And I began to teach about liminality and watch people. And what I was experiencing was an increasing awareness of kind of free-falling anger and anxiety on all of us. And anger and anxiety, when they're not managed well, that usually has to do with an inability for people to uh, manage their dominant center and deal appropriately with stress. So the book opens with liminality and then it talks about triads because it's not going to be possible to effectively do the rest of the work if you can't manage your dominant center, which would, for folks who aren't familiar with this language, would be either thinking, feeling, or doing, and that shows itself in triads. And um, then I talked about stress. And one of the reasons I wanted to write the book now is because I have a, I have been teaching a deviation from the traditional way of teaching about the move that we go to in stress uh, for a long time. And I have also talked with the people about it who went before me. Um, My people are Richard Rohr and Russ Hudson, but I was able to talk with others as well, because I I teach that differently. And so I'll give you an example of that. So everybody's in on 
the conversation as we move forward. Um, traditional Enneagram teaching is that when you are stressed, of course, you're not in a healthy place in your number and you intuitively move to um, the behavior of a different number every time. And the traditional teaching is that you move to the unhealthy side of that number. And the opposite teaching is that when you're in security, you're usually in healthy space and that you intuitively move to the high side of your security number. And I don't think that's true. And one of the reasons I don't think it's true is because I think the Enneagram is always helpful. And I have a lot of experience to stand on to say, I think it's always helpful if we understand it correctly. So I'm a two on the Enneagram, as you know. And, you know, if I'm unhealthy in my behavior as a two, it's not helpful for me to take on unhealthy eight behavior. It just exacerbates the problem. But at the same time, excuse me, at the same time, the only way I can take care of myself is the only way any of us can take care of ourselves is by using the behavior that is healthy from the number that we go to in stress. So I started teaching that after you know your number, the next number you should work on is your stress number because there's a lot there and you need it, but you need the healthy part of it and not the unhealthy part. And I'm working with some theories about what I think happens um, if you are in the unhealthy side of your security number as well. That's not in this book. We'll see if there if there's another one and if that comes. So <clears throat> I'm 71 and I think I'm right about this stress move. And I thought I need to add that to the body of Enneagram wisdom. And um, it has been well-received. So that, that makes me feel good. Um, then I think all the magic in Enneagram work happens in stances. The problem is you can't get to the magic until you do the other things that I've talked about. And um, they too have to do with thinking, feeling, and doing. For triads, one is dominant. For stances, one is repressed. And nobody likes to hear that they're repressed in either thinking, feeling, or doing. But I, you know, I don't know how I get away with teaching that and people thinking, well, that was helpful. It was horrible, but it was helpful. One time I, I was in a conversation with Brian McLaren. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know Brian's work. Yep. He's a longtime friend. And Brian said, you know, I, I don't know if it's because you're old or if it's because you're from the South, but you get away with a lot. And I asked him if he had considered that it was just because I was charming. And he said, oh, well, that too. That too. So I feel like I'm particularly situated in life and in my own Enneagram journey to be able to say, if you're not doing stance work, then you're really missing where the gold is. And that has to do with learning to bring up your repressed center. And then, uh, finally, I believe that transformation is not change. 
And so I closed this book with what I wanted to say about change and transformation. And simply put, I think change occurs when you take on something new. And I think transformation occurs when something old falls away, usually beyond your control. And I think you have to be willing to give up things for transformation. And um, so the final thing that I'll say about why I wrote this book uh, is I want you and everybody else to know that I, uh, when COVID hit, I thought, oh my, I missed it. I'm, I'm late. Because look at all this liminality, which is everywhere. But in fact, I think I'm right on time because now everybody knows uh, and has an experience of liminality. And I hope this book helps all of us to deal better with what has happened, with what is happening, and with whatever's coming. And I, I'm hopeful, I'm very hopeful about its value in the lives of people who want to do deep anywhere. Uh, would you mind for maybe the person who's listening and, you know, you're, you're talking about liminal space and you're talking about liminality and they may not be familiar with it. Can you just uh, maybe expound a little bit about what that is? Sure. Sure. Liminal space is when you're not where you were and when you're not where you're going. So uh, a good way to think about it is if you're standing on the threshold between two rooms or if you're outside and you're on the threshold of coming inside. Um. It's interesting to me, I'm thinking of this for the very first time right now. So if it's not interesting, take it out. (laughs) But the thing I just thought of for the very first time is the old tradition where grooms would pick up their brides and carry them over the threshold. And that is because you're leaving where you were and you're coming to a new place that you don't know yet. Mm -hmm. And that's a a perfect illustration of that reality, I think. So, um, liminality is not knowing if your children's school is going to be open or closed. It's not knowing if you're going to have to do virtual learning full-time or part-time. It's not knowing if your job is going to let you stay at home with your children to do virtual work and virtual education. It's... uh, not knowing if you'll have a job. It's not knowing if you want your job. It's all of this in-between space. So uh, Father Rohr taught us the day that he talked to us about liminal space, said that there are some people who are inclined to move forward quickly into unknown territory. And there are some people who are inclined to go back to the way things used to be. And there are some people who are standing on the threshold trying to know what to do next. And um, that fits Enneagram wisdom perfectly. Mm -hmm. So we're still in liminal space. Anybody who wants things to be the way they used to be can't have that. There is no the way they used to be. And there is no, we're unaffected by this. There's also, though, no clear path moving forward that you can count on as working, lasting. You know, we are just all here. 
And Father Roar then said this. I believe, I'm quoting him, I believe that liminal space is the most teachable space. Pause. Actually, quoting him still, actually, I believe liminal space could be the only teachable space. So when I first started teaching liminality, I talked about uh, kids leaving home and going to college. Um, You know, that's, you're not where you were and you're not where you're going. Like, we're there a lot. And I think the anxiety that that produces causes us to, to do whatever we can to not be there. And um, right now, the world, the global pandemic is calling the shots in some ways. And we are either being responsive or reactive, but I'm not sure we're saying, what am I learning? And what am I supposed to be learning? And I think that's because we don't, we didn't know to. Mm. So Joe and I have been saying all this time, what are we supposed to be learning? And what are we learning? And um, it's been really tricky. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I'm sure, uh, it, is, it, is it one of those things maybe that, like the liminal space, I think is difficult for everybody. And maybe it's just difficult in different ways for different Enneagram types. But like, I think of, um, like I think of myself, you know, with being a type three and everything and wanting to know what the right thing, you know, to quote unquote do is, it makes it very difficult for it. (laughs) Right. Right. So the reality, if you include liminality with uh, the reality of the Enneagram and its wisdom is that three sevens and eights can't stand liminal space and they want to move ahead. Like, let's just keep moving. We'll know what to do when we get there. Let's just keep moving. We can't take that with us and we can't take that. I don't have time to explain. We just got to keep moving, right? And fours, fives, and nines are saying, you know, the way things were before was working. So I want to go back to that. And ones, twos, and sixes are stuck on the threshold because they're in the dependent stance. And they're saying, I, I don't know what the next right thing is for me to do. That's what I want to do. And I don't know how to deal with all these people because I've given them power to tell me whether or not I'm doing the right thing. So just to give somebody a, a way to think about this in the future, three sevens and eights make up the aggressive stance and their orientation to time is the future. Fours, fives, and nines make up the withdrawing stance. And their orientation to time is the past. And ones, twos, and sixes make up the dependent stance. And their orientation to time is what's happening right now. What have you learned about, like, integrating all of that together? Because, you know, there's there's not necessarily, like, a, a right way to do it, you know, for, you know, the aggressive types or... Um, or the withdrawing types or anything like that. Like there's some things from the past that we do need to take with us. And yet we do need to move forward also. And then ones are, you know, they're looking for the thing to do. What are some things that you've learned how to integrate all that stuff with the different Enneagram types? The work of, 
the work that's outlined in the book is twos, threes, and fours, you have to manage your feelings before you can do anything effectively. Five, sixes, and sevens, you have to manage your thinking. And eights, nines, and ones, you have to manage your doing. And then, obviously, you don't get to just use one center of intelligence to make your way through life, right? But what we have done is we've spent most of our lives since we were children using primarily two of the three centers. So if I use myself as an example, I am feeling dominant and doing supports feeling as a two. And that means that I walk into any situation, I pick up on other people's feelings, and then I want to do something about that. The problem is thinking is repressed for me. So that means I don't use thinking to take in information and I don't use thinking to process or make sense of the information I've taken in. Right now, you know, I'm in the public speaking business. I'm a public teacher and that's what I do is travel and teach and write books and talk about them. And it's a very scary place. Has been worse than it is now. If I don't bring up thinking and say to myself, using thinking, this is not going to last forever. We will be able to be on the road and teach again and do what we do. And we had enough people on our board to do the work to see to it that we had uh, enough on hand, only enough, like we're a true nonprofit. We don't, we don't have profit, but we have enough on hand to make sure that we could take care of our employees for 90 days. Thinking people thought of that. I didn't. Thinking people pushed for that. I didn't. Because that's not how I operate in the world. So that's why we've got to have input from all three triads and then from uh, someone like me who can say, you know what, feeling repressed doesn't mean you don't have any feelings, but it does mean that you're not using them well or you're not allowing them. And that's causing you trouble in relationships. And, you know, it's all there. It's just a matter, I guess, of how I see. You know, I'm, I'm kind of an Enneagram and person and my whole body of work is about Enneagram and something. And this isn't different from that. Yeah. And I, I think one of, one of the things that really stood out to me from your book is you talk about how, you know, we have the, we have the dominant uh, stance and then the repressed one too. Um, and then you talk about the support one, which I really hadn't thought about before. And then as soon as like you mentioned, it, I started thinking, I'm like, oh yeah, I use thinking <laughs> to support my doing all of the time. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 And in the absence of feeling. Oh, very much so. So that puts you in the world, right? That puts you in the world with doing, thinking, thinking and doing and doing and thinking. And you're delighted usually with what you're thinking and with what you're doing. (laughs) Yep. And unaware that everybody around you might not be delighted. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So one thing I'd like to do, I think, if you have time, I'd like to run through all the numbers and explain just with a couple of sentences where they're repressed because there's a lot of pushback. You know, when I, uh, people, when I say you're thinking repressed, they kind of shut down. So let me just run through that real quick. So we avoid that. All right. 
uh, we'll start with threes, since that's your number. Um, Threes, sevens, and eights are all um, in the aggressive stance, which means that they are feeling repressed, which means they primarily use thinking and doing or doing and thinking to make their way in the world. You're an exception to that because the core numbers, three, six, nine on the Enneagram, take in information with the same stamp, the same uh, center that is repressed. So you receive information with feelings. You, you also walk in a room and know who's not doing well. But for you, if we're in a room of 100 people and 99 people are happy, you're good. If I walk in a room and one person is unhappy, I'm not good, right? So you take in information with feelings, but you set feelings aside. And sometimes you think, you know what? I need to think about this, not feel it, but think about this. And I'll do that later. But right now, I I have things to do. Can't let that bother me now. Sevens uh, have lots of feelings, but they have a half range of feelings, not a full range. So that they are all about the happy half. And they have lots of good, positive feelings. And they avoid negative feelings, unhappy feelings, sad feelings. And they've done that since they were children. It's intuitive. It's not like, yeah, I'm not going to think about that. It's how they see. And eights. Um, are passionate about everything. They're either all in or they're not in. Unfortunately, they count passion as every feeling, which ignores so many feelings that you and I can see right now on this feeling wheel, Mm -hmm. right? So um, we'll do ones, twos, and sixes next. Ones, twos, and sixes are in the dependent stance, and that means that they're thinking repressed. So ones really kind of sit up tall and look at me with like the stink eye when I say they're thinking repressed. And then I gently say, the inner dialogue that you have going constantly with your inner critic is not thinking. It's a conversation in your head with a voice that nobody else hears. And it limits productive thinking. So you got to learn how to manage that. Twos, uh, you know, I, I thought I was thinking all the time. I, I have, you know, I'm, I made really good grades. I have postgraduate, you know, like I, I'm all, I wrote three books. <laughs> um, and here's the reality. I spend 85% of my time thinking about relationships. And it's 85% because I'm doing better. And there are other things that I need to think about. And honestly, I wouldn't be able to write a good Enneagram book if I wasn't able to bring up thinking. Mm -hmm. And that meant managing my feelings because I'm feeling dominant, right? And that meant managing doing something about my feelings because I had to have my butt in the chair looking at my screen and writing. Uh, Sixes. Sixes are, I think, the number that's the most concerned about the common good. And everything has two sides, and that has two sides as well. 
<clears throat> and the reality is that um, the way they live and the way they see, which is how they take in information, is they take in that they, they kind of see the world as a slippery slope, and they take in information with thinking, but then they don't use productive thinking because they're a poor number. They then set productive thinking aside and they don't, they doubt themselves and they don't trust their own thinking. So they set that aside. And then what they do is imagine the worst thing that could happen and prepare for it. And unfortunately, I'm guessing the average of what they imagine and prepare for and what really happens is one out of hundred. So that's not productive thinking. Fours, fives, and nines. Um, are the withdrawing stance, and that means they're doing repressed. Fours uh, do a lot, and they lean toward the things they love to do and want to do and get good feelings from doing, and they put off till last or until somebody else does it. Um, things that are like uh, the laundry, going to the grocery store, paying the bills, things that don't have all the feels, right? And what happens then is that they are, for them, relationships are number one. That's the number one thing. But relationships are made and built in ordinary time doing ordinary things together, like cooking or cleaning out the garage or doing laundry. And so the, the desire to only do the things that are creative and interesting is problematic. Fives plan to do more than they do. They kind of have to have a plan for everything they're going to do. So they research and read and get on the internet and find everybody who ever had a garden. And then they go to Neil Sperry in Texas, we would say, to Neil Sperry um, workshops to know what to plant and what season and where you put it in the garden. And after they do all that, they end up not planting the garden. And nines, uh, doing dominant and doing repressed. Nines are doing something almost all the time, but it's frequently not what needs to be done. And they walk into a room and they see what needs to be done. And they say, somebody ought to handle that. It's not that they don't see it. It's that it doesn't occur to them that they're the one who's supposed to do it. Okay, that makes me feel better. Now that everybody <laughs> knows that I'm, I'm not feeling or thinking like they don't ever think or do or feel anything. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one one of the things that I did want to ask you about, and it, and it pertains to that as well, is what might be like a, and I know that you get a, a lot into the very specifics of it for each type in the book, um, but for those of us who find ourselves, you know, either thinking repressed, feeling repressed, repressed or doing repressed, what is like a, um, like almost like a baby step or like something that can help us do that? Because like, just as you were saying, it doesn't come natural to us and we don't even know. Uh, and it's been a journey for myself of even having to figure out my own feelings and accessing those. Uh, but what would your thoughts be for, for each of us who fall into those different um, repressed stances? Category. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, first of all, the goal is not to press down your dominant center. It's to manage it. And you don't want to push that down. What you want to do is manage it where it is, and you want to bring up your repressed center. 
And our inclination is to achieve balance by pushing down something rather than doing the work to bring up something. So that's for all three stances. Another thing that's for all three stances is that you will have to do this work for the rest of your life. Like this is lifelong work, but it's a big payoff every time you get it right. The more you do it, the more payoff there is. And it's usually pretty quick. And um, it's important to use each of the centers for their intended purpose. You can't um, think your feelings and you can't feel your thoughts and you can't think about doing something and not do it. it it's, um, you got to think and feel and do at appropriate times in appropriate ways. And so that means for three, sevens, and eights that you need to put yourself in a situation where you cannot control the outcome. And it has to be situations where people are struggling. And for ones, twos, and sixes, you have to um, entertain, spend time around, read people that you disagree with. Because that requires thinking. You don't get to just say, I'm right and you're wrong. Although there's a tendency right now for some of that. Lazy. That's lazy, lazy thinking. And for fours, fives, and nines, you have to do things that are both extraordinary and ordinary. And I've discovered that you can't do that unless you have a motivation for it. So right now, groceries are very high. Fours most likely like to buy groceries in beautiful grocery stores where everything is beautifully displayed and the lighting is just right. But maybe right now is a time to save money by not shopping there and find the beauty in a different place. Um, I became, my husband Joe's a nine, and I became his motivation for doing. We, he's a pastor, and um, we both have big jobs, and we have a lot to do. And we have a running list on the bar in the kitchen at our house, and it's full of things that have to be done. And when I travel and he's not with me, the motivation that he has to honor the fact that I have, that I'm in a hotel or on an airplane is to do some of the things on the list because he wants that for me more than he wants it for himself. The book has some specifics for each number that I, I think are great, but I think you got to buy in philosophically before you can look at a list of things and say, yeah, no, that's not going to, right? And I also think like your stance, for example, would be inclined to look at the list and say, oh, I can knock out four of those this week. And that's not really how I intended for you to do the work. So we have a wonderful uh, children's hospital here in Dallas for uh Children, it's a Scottish Rite hospital for children who um, need care and big surgeries and ongoing care. 
and yet are are not struggling with end of life cancer and things like that. It's a great place for threes, sevens, and eights to go because you have to deal with something that doesn't go. If you volunteer there, you have to give away get. You have to deal with something that's not going to go away. It's only an opportunity for it to be better than it was. And your stance doesn't like to settle for better. Uh, are we going to say something? Yeah. I was just going to say, and that brings yeah. up feelings. And then you get to choose if you're going to deal with them or not. What uh, What do you think is it in... And, you know, the, the, and I think you're referring to the aggressive types, right? That saying, like, we don't like to deal with better. Um, what, what is it? Do you think that drives us to not settle for better? Um, I think in part, it's just that you use only two of the three centers. So you use thinking and doing and doing and thinking and thinking and doing. And so your way of your pattern is, I'm going to do this. And then you think, oh, I can do this better. I can do this successfully. I can do this better than anybody's ever done it. I can be really great at this. Uh, I'm not so good at this. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to do this plan instead. And it's about goal setting. All three numbers set goals and reach them and set another one and reach it and set another one and reach it. And you don't reach back for people who aren't able to keep up. Yeah. Is it, this is, this is just a thought that came to uh, my mind. One of the things that's really hard for me uh, to do is just make a decision because I, uh, based on my feelings and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. And is it almost, would another thing almost be like, I feel like there's a tendency in myself and even like in the other, or the other aggressive types that I know, we don't count feelings. Like they are not like a legitimate criteria for it. No, 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 no. They're problematic and should be dealt with later and by the individual. Yeah. It's like, do that at home, but not here. Uh, and, the, and the reality for you as a three is that um, your big word, you, you just watch yourself. The biggest word in the world for you is efficiency. Oh, yeah. Right? Yep. It has to be efficient. And if it's not, then I'll do something else. I'm, I'm not doing this. And so, you know, some things aren't efficient, like feelings. They block efficiency. They block effectiveness. You also don't ever want, as a three, to be in a position where unexpected emotions show themselves. So you protect yourself from that. And it's because you don't know how to deal with it when they come. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the, one of the things uh, that I wanted to ask you about is like one of the things that happened to me is like I I had uh, uh, a great trauma that happened about four or five years ago and it, and it was very much a situation to where you were talking about to where there's nothing I could do to fix it like I I can't come up with a plan good enough to do that um, and I feel like over over the years it has um, it has made it a lot easier for me not to focus on efficiency as much. Um, and I was just curious of how, like, is that, is like going through trauma and like working through the trauma, is that something that you've seen work through the other Enneagram numbers too? Or like, how does that play out? You know, my favorite way to teach is to tell a story. So I'm going to, um, 
Here's the teaching that precedes the story. Threes actually cannot hit their stride and make it, make it holistically, including psychology, spirituality, health, all of it, until they've had a significant failure. So a significant failure for any three is traumatic, and it's a turning point. But a young three's response, who hasn't had that failure yet, which would be traumatic, is very interesting. So I taught at uh, Baylor University for, I don't know, maybe seven years on and off, any room. And um, I was teaching, and a senior college student came up to me at the break, and he said, hey, like, I'm a three on the Enneagram, and I'm, my whole world's ahead of me. So could you kind of help me figure out how to set up the failure and then go ahead and have it so that I can move on? Now, that's a typical immature three response. Great. I'm going to get that done, check it off the list and get it out of the way so I can move forward. And it, as you know, doesn't work that way. And, and I would say about other numbers. Threes, sevens, and eights require a bigger event than other numbers to know that they have to move forward differently. And I think it's interesting that as a three, you go to nine in stress because that's a withdrawing number. And eights go to five in stress and that's a withdrawing number. And sevens go to one in stress and that is doing what has to be done move. And so it's giving you what you need to do the work that you need to do. If, you, if ever you follow the line that connects you to any other number, you will find out that there's something there that you need. And what sevens need to do is finish the projects that they have started. And one energy gives them that. But what you need to do is lay on the sofa and think and feel and comfort yourself and make space for awkward learning of how to do something new. And when eights go to five, what they need to do is withdraw. They need to just pull back. Yeah. Does that yep, help? Very much so. Um, I want to go back to, you know, we were talking about stress earlier and you were talking about um, how how your view on stress and how uh, accessing the healthy side whenever we're in stress isn't isn't necessarily like a common thing. I'd love to hear, um, that had to have been quite a journey for you to work through that of like getting comfortable with teaching that because you're, you're going against the common people and you're yeah. going against uh maybe even some of the relationships that matter most to you who are teaching something differently. And so I would just love to hear um, that from you and kind of having to work through that. Okay. Well, um, 
Richard Rohr taught me the Enneagram two and a half decades ago. And um, he's always been available to me to talk about what I think. And when I started to roll out what I thought about stress, he uh, is wise and uh, he thought about it and he saw that as the Enneagram evolving and he thought that I had seen and experienced the right thing. Russ Hudson is uh, also one of my people, though not for as long as Richard and I. And he has been part of evolving the Enneagram. So he too certainly sees it as, and it could be this. And we're aware, all the whole generation that is before me that did Enneagram work. So that would be Rizzo and Hudson, Helen Palmer, Sandra Matry, uh, Almas, Roar. They... Naranjo, Ichazo, they all took it to a different place too. And the question then is, how how can you see something new here that doesn't tear down something old? And I'm I'm not saying that I never go to the unhealthy side of eight when I'm stressed as a two. I'm saying I can learn to do better than the bottom of two and the bottom of eight. And so what I'm teaching is an intentional move and what has been taught is an instinctive move that I don't think is necessary. And honestly, I I think the the cloud of witnesses, teachers that went before me in terms of the Enneagram are hopeful that somebody will work with it as long as I have and anxious to hear what we've discovered. And I would also add that my children are involved in Enneagram stuff on different levels, but our daughter Joey is teaching Enneagram full-time in corporate America now. And she's got some new stuff that she showed me that I'm fascinated with And I um, set up a time for her to talk with Russ Hudson, and he was. And I think it's a matter of tipping our hat to where we come from and not moving forward for arrogant reasons, but tried and true wisdom. That help? Oh, yeah. You know, it took me eight years. Like, if that sounded like it was a little snappy thing. (laughs) No, I was I was teaching this when the other two books yeah. were written. So it's it's been around a long time. And and the other reality is that they none of them talk about stances like I do. And I think the unsung heroes of the Enneagram are Hurley and Dobson because they laid the groundwork for stance work and and they don't they don't get full yeah. enough credit for that, I don't think. 
I I did want to ask because uh, you you mentioned that uh, you're you're formulating some thoughts in terms of the security side as well, which is uh, something that I, I had just been wondering about over the past couple of years. And um, I know that stuff that you're still putting together, but is is there maybe anything that you can uh, tease about some of the things you're thinking with that? Sure. You know, I, I'm, I hope that people who are doing anagram work are holding it together uh, and not competitively. One could hope. I have been looking at the Enneagram trying to find my shadow because, you know, I'm married to a man who's a United Methodist pastor. His specialty is spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices. And he's a former, he was a Catholic priest till he was 40. And like he's done a lot of work. And there's a lot of reality in my understanding of my shadow side. So I can't yet talk about the other numbers, but I can tell you for sure my shadow is in the low side of four. And my guess is that that's going to prove to be true. And, you know, I don't hold secrets because I teach things before I write about them because that's the only way I know if they're true. Yeah. So I am going to do some teaching uh, for probably two, three years to find out from hundreds of people if that is true or if it's just uh, five numbers or just three numbers. Yeah. It's true for me. Yeah. And I, I could say it's true for me uh, on the sex because if I am, uh, I can get in my head so very quickly on it and it feels um yeah it just feels very much like the 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 unhealthiness of a six which can happen yeah yeah and so then you don't take for granted the gifts of a six that you might need to lean into when you're feeling secure you know i i I literally cannot write a book unless i'm secure because Mm -hmm. i need four behavior and and energy, and here's what that looks like. Twos are almost always focused outward, and fours are almost always focused inward. And I have to get inside of me to get out the things that I think I want to share that might have value in the body of wisdom of Enneagram teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you have this quote towards that, and it's a little bit uh, likely, but there's there's a question that I want to ask uh, yeah. out of it. You know, you say uh, the Enneagram serves as a bridge over what I believe are the first two hurdles for most people who begin a spiritual journey toward transformation. We encounter the first hurdle when we begin to move toward a new awareness of who we are and who we can be, but we run into, or, but we run into all of the things that we don't like about ourselves. They seem impossible to change. Then if we embrace that challenge, the second hurdle is we're faced with is the pain we all bring from growing up in our families of origins where we are or where we hurt one another, whether we intended to or not. And one of the things that I just wanted to ask you about is, um, are there other hurdles or what are maybe some of the other hurdles that uh, pertain to that that you've seen um, 
and obviously we I don't feel like we mastered the first two. It's more like I, a gr- I, I would like a greater awareness. I mean, and this is probably just the three ness in me too. Um, a greater awareness of what the the opposition or the the thing is that we need to overcome. Yeah. Um. So let's start with the first one, and and I would just say that, um, being able you can't change what you can't name. And so what the Enneagram offers you is a way to name the things that you've always done that you don't want to do, to name the way you are in relationships that sometimes causes trouble, to name, when things are named for you, you have a chance of looking at them and trying to work with them and trying to do, be, think better. And then you run into family of origin stuff. So you're still working on that. And where that leads you is to difference in you and your family of origin. And, and this also, by the way, is the three books lined up in order. That's part of the whole thing. So what happens then in, in this um, way of making peace with your past, with very good people, my parents were really great and they hurt me at times unintentionally. And Joe and I are good parents and we worked at it a lot and we hurt our children at times unintentionally. So everybody's doing it. It's not like, oh, that's the people down the block, but not us. We got it all going on here. So there's acceptance of that. But then the third thing is not who. Am I over here in step one and all the stuff that I've done and not who I am in relationship to these people? But now that I know that, who can I be in relationship to myself? Who can I be in relationship to God? And how can I know what all of that means moving forward? So the two other hurdles are, the first one is people love you for your personality, not for your essence. And so people don't really want you to change. People you work with don't want you to change. The people you love don't want you to change. They like you just like you are. And so when you start to do transformative things, then you know you have to do it. And other people don't know what's happening. And they are really, they kind of back up from that. The second thing is, Becoming involves allowing. And you cannot do this journey without allowing some things to fall away. But people who don't have access to any tools to work with, what are they supposed to do to evolve? or transform, or grow spiritually. Like, okay, I'd love to do that, someone might say. But what am I, how? And so I often say, the Enneagram is really great. I mean, it's really great. But it's only one spiritual tool. And it'll help you get from A to Z. 
but it's not the only thing you need. And lots of people don't read. Lots of people don't know what to read. Lots of people don't have a therapist ever in their life. Lots of people don't ever have a spiritual director. So it's a pretty big ask to lead them to transformation or even to change if you're not offering some tools, ways to do that, that will help along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that uh, perfectly leads to the last thing. And you you had mentioned it earlier. I would just love for you to expound as we end on the difference between uh, transformation and change. Have you ever been to a movie where you walked out and thought, I will never be the same. That movie changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. And then three months later, somebody's saying, you know, I need a meaningful movie. And you say, oh, yeah. I watched this movie. Um, I, I can't quite. I can look it up. I don't know the name of it, but it it really meant a lot to me. That routine. Mm-hmm. Same thing with I just read this book. I just heard this speaker. I just watched this television show. I just did whatever the thing is. Just did it. And then it goes away. And it goes away because it involves taking on new things. And we seldom process the last thing that we took on. So I'm going to give you an example. Um, my husband and I, I know are late to the table, but we're watching Ted Lasso. And we have been for about, I don't know, maybe three months, but we've also had a lot happening during that time. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we don't watch a lot of television. So he likes it so much. He's a nine on the Enneagram. And it makes him feel good that every conflict is handled by the end of the show. And he loves, loves, loves it. And we aren't binge watchers. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wants to. Like we'll watch one and he wants to watch another one. And then he'll want to watch a third one. And then he'll wait a day, but then he wants to watch another one. So we've had an ongoing conversation about it because I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that because there are some things that are happening in Ted Lasso that could be transformational for me if I process them by journaling and writing down quotes and thinking about it. And the reason is because he's a relationship guy and I'm a relationship gal and I need to learn from him and I can't do it binge watching. And I can't do it moving forward without working with the pieces I hear that I think are for me. And in our culture, we just receive and receive and take and take. And there's so much coming in that never, ever gets processed. And I wonder if what we were supposed to learn, one of the things during being quarantined was, I have some time here to learn something. What am I supposed to be learning? That could be transformational. But I tell you what everybody did, not just your stance. We all kept thinking, well, this is going to be over next week. So I'm I'm just going to rest and hang back because next week I'm going to be in the office. Next week I'm going to be able to travel. No, 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 I would say. Let's don't cancel that till we know what the next week. 
And now looking back, I don't know how to measure what I lost by not learning and processing more. Now I was writing a book, so I get a little credit for that during COVID, <laughs> but I, I, I think it could have been different. But those are tools that we don't have. That's so. I know that we've covered a lot, but I always just love asking people: Is there anything else that we haven't covered, or that's on the top of your mind that you just want to mention? Yeah, I I love this book, and I love it because it's helpful. And the Enneagram is a process, and this book lays out the process for you. There's not a place where you arrive. It's just all a process. And um, I think uh, people can do some really good work in their lives with the tools that are available in this book. And I hope they will. Mm. Yeah. Well, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book and uh, continue to learn from you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all of those things? SuzanneStabile.com will get you everything. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for not only for writing the book, but just for doing the work too and sharing it with the world. You're so welcome. It's nice to be with you again. And I, you know, who knows? Maybe there'll be another one someday. You know, Suzanne mentioned at that event that she loves this book and I love this book so much too. It is so helpful. It's put, um, uh, I'm so grateful for it, one, because she addressed a lot of the things that I had been thinking as it concerns the Enneagram and just as always wondered about as well. And so it was grateful um, for me just to go like, oh, yeah, someone someone else thinks this way as well. And uh, I think the other thing is it's helped me better pay attention to my stress as well. And I think one of – and we we didn't really touch on it too much as well uh, in the conversation. But one of the things that was really helpful, one of the insights in there – is how much uh, threes can tend to deal with anxiety as well, and I think I had uh, I had known that about myself. Uh, that's something that I feel like I had discovered fairly recently, uh, with within uh, you know the last uh, couple of years, is realizing how easily um, anxiety can hit me, and it just it just gave me a clear explanation for why that is, and that that isn't abnormal for for type threes as myself. And so that was incredibly helpful. I loved what she said uh, towards the end of the conference. I mean, there's really just so much. But this is just uh, a couple of the things that really stood out to me from it is what she talked about uh, with her and her husband, Joe, going through Ted Lasso and realizing that she, and if she wanted to get everything that she wanted out of it, that she needed to move at a slower pace by going through it because she hadn't processed everything that she had learned about it. And I think for me, that's something that I'm trying to learn right now is slowing down through the things that I'm going through. And I, and a couple of things that have put that into practice for me is a few years ago, I started a, a book study. And I don't, I don't even know if it's really a book study. It's more like a, a weekly uh, get-together, a weekly one-on-one um, with a guy who's uh you know about 15 years older than me and he's he's a great friend and even uh and he's a ment- I mean I would consider him a mentor. He's one of the people that I go to a lot whenever I need advice or anything. 
And uh, we just started going. Part of the part of our get together is we just uh, go through a book together. And typically, you know, it's somewhere between you know twenty and thirty pages. So depending on that, it's either a chapter or a couple of chapters. And we just talk about it and process it. And um, that is not my natural inclination to it. And then I uh, I started kind of a, a second one similar with with another friend of mine. And so those have been really helpful about slowing me down and thinking through and processing what I'm what I'm going through. And also just realizing that that's not very natural for me. I like to move on to the next thing and what's happening. And it's it's difficult for me to slow down to process that stuff. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I've started doing these library episodes to where I'm just kind of thinking and talking about uh, some of the things that I'm learning and some of the things that have stood out to me. And that practice in of itself has been very helpful because I I try to not just recommend the stuff that I'm learning from, but what really stood out to me from this. What are the things that resonated so strongly with me as I'm trying to do? You know, at the end of most of these episodes uh, that I record at the end of the interviews is just telling you and letting you know how this how this thing stood out to me, how it affected me, some of the things that I'm thinking about it, some of the things that I'm processing through because of it as well, and. Yeah, so those those are a couple of things that have really stood out to me and just realizing the importance of that. And also just what she was talking about of change and transformation and uh and and learning to deal just with all of that that comes uh that comes through with it and what she had mentioned about uh the people loving our personality instead of our essence. And that's something that I uh yeah. That's that's also another thing that really stood out to me. I'm not, and, and that's something that I'm still trying to sort through and figure out as well. And so there's a lot of great takeaways from just this entire conversation. And whatever stood out to you, I would love to hear from you. Uh, and the best way to reach out to me is learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. Would love to hear from you. Some takeaways from this episode, from other episodes of the podcast, or hey, even uh, some subjects that you would love us to cover on the podcast or different guests that you would love uh, for us to try to get on. Would love to hear from you. Or, and one last thing, things that you're learning from and some of the some of the lessons that you've learned from, you know, podcast episodes, you know, Netflix series, whatever that might be in life as well. And if you haven't left a review of the podcast, I would really appreciate it. If you did, that would mean a whole lot to me. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe or follow one of our podcast player you're using as the best way to make sure that you won't miss any episode of the podcast which is coming out uh, or just whenever they come out you you'll be sure not to miss them as well i do want to give a quick shout out and say thanks to garrett oler for doing the editing this podcast thanks to sam massey for creating the music on this podcast and thank you for listening all the way to the end of the podcast and thanks again to suzanne for being on the podcast and just um just for the impact that she's had on my life through the work that she's done and through the books and the podcast and everything that she's shared as well. So I think that's all that I have for today. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.